Man, if you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Acts chapter 19 this morning. Acts chapter 19. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 as we continue our series through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. I've entitled this message, How to Establish and Extend a Church. I think as we look through this passage of Scripture, you'll see why that is the title of the message. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all prophesying, or there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Live churches' expenses are always more than their income. Dead churches don't need much money. Live churches have parking problems. Dead churches have empty spaces. Live churches may have some noisy children. Dead churches are quiet as a cemetery. Live churches keep changing their ways of doing things. Dead churches see no need to change. Live churches grow so fast that you can't keep up with people's names. In dead churches, everybody always knows everybody's name. Live churches strongly support world missions. Dead churches keep the money at home. Live churches are full of regular, cheerful givers. Dead churches are full of grudging tippers. Live churches move ahead on prayer and faith. Dead churches work only on sight. Live churches plant daughter churches. Dead churches fear spending the money, time, and talent. Live churches outgrow their Sunday school facilities. Dead churches have room to spare. 
Live churches welcome all classes of people. Dead churches stick to their own kind. Live church members read their Bibles and bring them to church. Dead churches members seldom do. Live churches members enthusiastically support the ministry. Dead churches have no ministry, only functions. Live churches members look for someone they can help. Dead churches members look for something to complain about. Live churches members reach out to share their faith in Christ. Dead churches members don't have enough to share. Author unknown. The question is, which one are we? A live church or a dead church? In our text this morning, we have the establishment of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a city of roughly 200,000 people. It was the center of magic arts and it housed the temple for Artemis, which was a uh, multi-breasted goddess. At the time, the temple to Artemis was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. God allowed Paul to go into Ephesus and establish a church. How did Paul do it? How did he establish this church in Ephesus? And how did he extend that church after it was established? Isn't that what every Christian wants? Don't we want our church to be established? And don't we want our church to grow and to extend its reach? Don't we want a church that is alive? Well, I believe the text reveals to us three ways in which this church in Ephesus was established and extended. And I think um, we can learn from that as a church. First, they were established through evangelism. Then they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And finally, the church was extended through equipping. First, let's notice this morning that the church was established through evangelism. The church was established through a bit evangelism. Back in chapter 18 and verse 21, Paul said, if God willed, he would return to Ephesus. Well, apparently the Lord willed, God willed, because about a year later, Paul returns to Ephesus after leaving Corinth. He found in Ephesus 12 men. Luke describes these 12 men in verse 2 for us, and he describes them as those who believed. And as Paul engages them in conversation, he was able to recognize that something did not seem right with these 12 men. Paul asked him if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, and their response was that they did not know there was a Holy Spirit. Now this is interesting because they are described as disciples of John the Baptist. And John taught uh, his followers that the Messiah would, ba uh, would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. And so it's odd that they would say that they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. What is most likely meant here is that they had not heard that the Holy Spirit had been given to men like John had preached about, like they had heard from John. And so they, they had not heard that the Holy Spirit had come and actually 
entered into the lives of people. Paul then explains to them that the one that John had been prophesying about, the one that John had been talking about this whole time had come, and that is Jesus Christ. I do not think we have every word of Paul recorded here in the conversation that went back and forth. No doubt he would have told them of the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and who Jesus was and exactly what Jesus accomplished. When they heard the gospel, they believed and were baptized as a confession of their faith. And after they were baptized, Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak in tongues and they begin to prophesy. And after this, Paul goes into the synagogue and preaches boldly for three months. Then an opposition raises up against Paul and he is forced to take the disciples and, and meet in the hall of Tyrannus where Paul teaches them and the gospel is spread out even more. But we have this idea that the church is established through evangelism, the church at Ephesus. So let's look at evangelism in the church. I don't know if you caught it, but Luke, who is the author of Acts, says that Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they believed in something. They were called disciples, so they were followers of someone. Some people think, um, why preach a message of salvation in the church? Isn't everyone in the church saved? Well, not necessarily. The question is, who were these people following? They said they were disciples. Why preach a message a gospel message to disciples. Well, who were they following and what did they believe in? They were following John the Baptist and they believed the message of John the Baptist, but they did not know how Jesus had fulfilled John's preaching. Therefore, they are not disciples of Jesus. There are many so-called believers in churches today. There are many people that would say, well, I'm a Christian and they go to church today. They believe in God and perhaps they believe in Jesus in their own way but they're not saved if you ask them if they were a Christian they would respond with yes I'm a Christian because in their mind they're not Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist or atheist so they would say well yeah I must be a Christian then however just because they answer they are a Christian does not make them a Christian. Well, how can you tell if someone's a Christian or not? You know, we hear um, all the time today, don't judge. Don't judge me. Don't judge lest ye be judged yourself. And that's, that's used a lot of times to say, well, you can't look at someone's life and try to make a call as to whether they are a follower of Christ or not. And that's really a false idea. One way to tell if someone is a Christian or not is to look at their life and see if there are any signs of them being led by the Spirit. I have no clue why Paul asked these people if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And the text really doesn't tell us why he asked them 
that, but I bet he sensed something was off. Maybe there was no evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they did not understand basic spiritual truth. We don't know why Paul asked them, but Paul sensed something which led them, which led him to ask a question to determine where these men were spiritually. And the question is this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There are times when we enter into conversations with people that have been in church for years. And they say they believe in Christ. But you sense something just is not right. Let me tell you, I've I've personally had these kinds of conversations with people. On more than one occasion. Where I've been talking with somebody that's been in church for years. And sensed something just wasn't right. That they really didn't fully understand. But there are two questions that seem to get at the heart of of the issue very quickly. Those questions are this. Do you know for sure that when you die, you will be with God in heaven? Do you know for sure that when you die, you'll be with God in heaven? I had a lady that had taught Sunday school in the Southern Baptist Church for several years and I engaged her in conversation at a revival one time where I was just visiting this church and I asked her that question and she responded with no she said I don't know how anybody can know for sure they're going to heaven this lady had been teaching Sunday school there's a second question to follow up with that question if God asked you why Should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? Anyone's answer to those questions will will reveal to them what it is that they are trusting in for their salvation. A person must believe in Jesus Christ to be born again. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully man who came and paid the penalty for sin that you and I deserve on the cross. He rose again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. A person has to personally receive God's gift of salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross. We can't trust in our own goodness because the scripture says that our goodness is filthy rags in front of a holy God. It's not anything plus faith. It's not like, oh, I have to have faith and I got to do some things on my own that saves us. It is faith in Christ alone that saves us. We do not add anything to our faith and if anyone tries to add anything to their faith it only reveals to me and to any other Christian it should reveal to us that they do not understand the gospel and that salvation is in Christ alone it is in Christ alone we need to do evangelism in the church we need to tell other people about Christ we need to talk about Jesus we need to talk about why it is that we know for sure that we go to heaven we need to do evangelism in the church but next notice this evangelism is divisive evangelism is divisive you know there's a lot of talk today in these days about not causing division and honestly I agree with that to a certain extent we should not just be out looking to be divisive for no reason at all you know just trying to cause division with someone however let's understand that the gospel 
is naturally divisive. In its makeup, Paul managed to last three months before he's forced out of the synagogue. That was probably a personal best for Paul. Why was he forced out? Well, Scripture tells us what he was doing, right? It says he was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, according to verse 8. So he's in the synagogue. He's reasoning with them and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He reasoned with them, meaning he would take on their questions and he would would take them to the scriptures to show them that Jesus was the promised Messiah and the Savior and the true King. And it says he persuaded them of this. And and when it says that that he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God, it is a reference to the the domain that is ruled by Christ of which he is the sovereign King and encompasses all all of life. And so he's saying, Jesus is the sovereign king over everything. Paul is persuading them. However, the point I want us to see is this. Paul preached the gospel, winning people to Christ, and it was divisive. Whenever you tell people their goodness and their works or anything else that they can think of has no merit towards their salvation, it's not a popular message. When you tell them that Jesus Christ is the rightful king and the Lord of all things, That's not a popular message either. Some will respond with faith, but the fact is, just like we read in verse 9, some will be stubborn and some will continue in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. Did you see the division right there? Some of the most religious people bring the strongest opposition. Why? Because religion tends to be prideful. And how dare you suggest that I'm a sinner? And how dare you say that I'm not good enough to get into heaven? Do you know how much I've given to this church? Do you know I was baptized when I was a little kid? Do you know how much I read my Bible? Do you know that old grandpa told me this? Do you know that that my granddaddy or my great granddaddy started this church? Don't you know that? Doesn't matter. And people don't like to hear that. Not to mention some people are highly religious but not Christian at all. They're devout religiously but not to Christ. Every major religion except biblical Christianity makes an appeal to the pride of men by promoting a salvation that comes through human merit. That you somehow have to earn it. The gospel proclaims that no one is ever good enough for heaven and everyone that has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the only way for a sinner to be rightly justified if is by an act of God. That's the only way for a sinner to ever be justified. That's Christianity. You can't justify yourself. It's only through God's grace, through the redemption, which is found only in Jesus Christ. And guess what? That message is divisive. It's divisive to say you're not going to get to heaven in any other way except through Jesus Christ and by God's grace. That's a divisive message, folks. The shocking thing about Christianity is not that God would send people to hell. The shocking thing about Christianity is that anybody makes it to heaven. That's what's shocking because no one deserves heaven. 
It's by God's grace. But thirdly, as we look at evangelism in the church, let's notice this, that all believers need baptism. All believers need baptism. We read that John the Baptist had baptized these men. He did this when they repented for the forgiveness of their sins. We know this because that's what John the Baptist practiced. However, salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints were saved through their belief in the coming Messiah. After the Messiah has come, which is Jesus Christ, it was necessary to specifically believe in him. Now, Paul baptizes these men in the name of Jesus Christ, which is an indication that they just now got saved. The name of Jesus is is not talking about the baptismal formula being in Jesus' name alone. Jesus himself taught that you baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Luke is writing here to show that the Messiah had come and, and they had, these men didn't have faith in Jesus, but now that they placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, they have placed their faith in the hope of Jesus. We are Baptists. This is a Baptist church, just in case you didn't know. Okay? So if you thought you were in a Methodist church or something like that, I apologize. This is a Baptist church. We're Southern Baptists. We believe that Scripture clearly teaches that believers are baptized. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. That's been a part of the Baptist faith and message for since Southern Baptists have come into existence. That's what we believe, that believers are baptized. In other words, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you get baptized. That means that if someone has been baptized as a baby, then they would be rebaptized, and you see this caused a problem in in history because we were rebaptizers. So we rebaptize after they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because they are confessing faith in Christ as Lord. And infants can't believe in Jesus, and therefore they shouldn't be baptized. That's why we don't baptize babies. We don't believe in infant. Baptism. Now I know that there are some who advocate for infant baptism. However, there is no New Testament example or command that infants are to be baptized. We don't see it anywhere in Scripture. I am very familiar with the argument that links baptism to circumcision. In fact, one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, makes the argument. And they, they say that infants are baptism. And infant baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Just like circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And the church is the new Israel. Therefore, we should baptize babies. However... Baptism is always, always, let me say that again, always linked with saving faith in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Every single time. It's an outward picture of the inward cleansing and the new life that is, that is imparted to every single person who places their faith in Jesus Christ. All believers need baptism. Every single one. So if you're here today and you say, well, well, I'm a believer and I've never been baptized. I was baptized. Maybe you were baptized as a baby. Maybe you were in a Presbyterian church or something like that. You were baptized as an infant. And you say, well, 
I've never been baptized since becoming a believer, then I would say to you that you need to be baptized. It's your first step of obedience. So we see that the church here is established through evangelism. Paul is, is goes in and he speaks to these 12 and, and he's preaching the word to them and evangelism becomes divisive. We see that in that, that uh, he baptizes these people, but nonetheless, this church in Ephesus is established through evangelism. If we want to grow or even start a church, it has to happen through evangelism. If, if In other words, if we want First Baptist Church to grow, okay, it happens through evangelism. It happens by you and I going out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people because we realize that all of the town of Washington or all the city of Washington is not saved. And so we go out and we share the gospel with people and we share with them who Jesus Christ is and what he's done just like we see Paul doing and we lead them to the Lord and that's how you grow a church and how you establish a church through evangelism. We don't do it by going, oh, well, we're going to go over to this church because they're, they're really big and we need to take some of their people. That's not how we grow churches, okay? We do it through evangelism. Secondly, let's notice this, that the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can't ignore the fact that these men believed and were baptized. Then Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, causing them to speak in tongues and to prophesy. This passage of scripture has led many people into confusion. This primarily stems from the fact that the KJV translates uh, the verse, uh, I think it's verse 2, to, it, says to have, it says, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed. If you have a King James Bible, that's what it will say. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And that's an inaccurate translation. Many in the Pentecostal movement have then argued that not all believers receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. Therefore, we should, receive, or we should seek to receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this is evidenced by speaking in we covered a lot of that when we did our study through 1 Corinthians. Oftentimes, they would use, therefore, they use speaking in tongues as the evidence as to whether or not someone has truly received the Holy Spirit. And, and I could talk about this all day probably, but let me share quickly a few things concerning the Holy Spirit and being empowered, or the church being empowered by the Spirit to establish uh, and extend the church. So let's, let's look at this idea of the Holy Spirit. First of all, um, this, uh, I want us to know this, all who place their faith in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? Everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Romans that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Christ. The Corinthian believers who we know were carnal had the Holy Spirit within them. Paul told them that they were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul told the church at Ephesus when they believed they were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. 
But if a person does not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, they are not saved. Okay? And a lot of this confusion sometimes stems from how we do evangelism. You know, we, we say uh, to little kids sometimes, do you want to invite Jesus into your heart? Okay? Jesus doesn't take up residence in us, yet we live our life for Jesus, but it's the Holy Spirit that takes up residence in us. So everybody that believes in Jesus Christ, that places their faith in Jesus Christ, possesses the Holy Spirit. If someone does not have the Holy Spirit, then they're not a believer. Secondly, speaking in tongues and prophesying are not normative. Speaking in tongues and prophesying are not normative. Yes, in the book of Acts, we see speaking in tongues and prophesying. We see that uh, throughout the book of Acts. We see what is known as a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was promised by Jesus in Acts chapter 1. We must understand that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It is, it is the time of Jesus leaving this earth and the time of the establishment of the new covenant. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans believe in, in Jesus Christ, uh, but they did not receive the Holy Spirit, if you remember, until Peter and John came and Peter and John prayed for them and laid hands on them. And as we said, when we studied that passage, the reason that the, there was a delay was so that the early church was not divided into Jewish and Samaritan churches. Uh, the apostles saw that the Samaritans received the exact same spirit that they had received and the Jews had received. And the Samaritans were in submission to the apostles throughout this pass, or throughout this uh, time frame. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to the Gentiles and to Peter's surprise, if you remember, uh, they received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Here we have these people that are, that are believers in the Old Testament living in Ephesus, and they received the Holy Spirit. In each and every case that we look at right there and throughout the book of Acts, there was an apostle present to impart the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we notice that receiving the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues happened in a group and it is directly related to salvation tongues was a sign that God was giving that group of people the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts however we notice that it was transitional in nature it was used to show the group of people received the same Holy Spirit as that group of people over there and so so it's like, oh, well, look, they received the same Holy Spirit that we received. They're doing the exact same thing that we did when we received the Holy Spirit. And so it's the establishment of the church universal. This is why Paul asked the Corinthians, in Corinthians, in a rhetorical question, all do not speak in tongues, do they? That's what he says. If speaking in tongues was normative, if it was a normative sign for receiving the Holy Spirit, Paul would have never said that. He would never ask that question. He instead would have made the statement, everyone speaks in tongues. That's what he would have said. Everyone that receives the Holy Spirit speaks in tongues. But he didn't say that. He says not everyone speaks in tongues, do they? We have conversation in the book of Acts that, that do not show people speaking, or we have conversions in the book of Acts that don't show people speaking in tongues. It is my personal belief that tongues recorded in the Bible is the ability to speak a language that was not previously learned. In Acts chapter 2, it is 
um, clearly a language, and the same Greek word is used uh, that's used there is used everywhere for tongues. The fact that tongues required an interpretation is evidence that these are not just someone babbling or saying whatever they want to say and using some sort of ecstatic utterance since um, babbling can't really be interpreted. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody babble and then try to interpret what they're saying, but it doesn't work out too good. Okay? Prophesying in this verse seems to be spontaneous praise of God. And it's not a foretelling like when we think of prophesying, but it's spontaneous praise of God that has happened. They're not telling the future. Here's my point. Because tongues and prophecy were not normative. They're not a normative sign of conversion. We don't see that every single time someone is converted. Because they're not normative, then they're not normative today either. And to interpret it as normative, to say to someone, well, you need to speak in tongues as evidence that you've received the Holy Spirit is a gross misrepresentation of what the Scripture teaches us. All who place their faith in Christ receive the Holy Spirit. One last thing concerning the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not the same as walking in the Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not the same as walking in the Spirit. To be clear, just because we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation does not mean that you and I will always walk in the Spirit. While every single genuine believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit, the moment of their conversion, walking in the Spirit is a process. If it were not a process, Paul would not have issued the command to walk in the Spirit, nor would he have said to be filled with the Spirit. It is true that there are many people who profess to know Christ whose daily lives are more characteristic of the lust of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit. As believers, we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to walk in the power of the Spirit so that the Lord transforms our character and our behavior and, and, and conforming us to be more like Him. Those people that know us should be able to see evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And if they can't see that, then we need to make sure that our faith is actually in Jesus Christ. However, we also need to make sure that we make it a daily priority to walk in the power of the Spirit. We need to be walking in the Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit. How do you do that? How do you walk in the power of the Spirit? I mean, if we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation and He takes up residence, then how is it that I walk in the Spirit? Well, through prayer, through Bible reading, through witnessing to other people and surrendering to the Spirit every single day. That's how you walk in the power of the Spirit the Holy Spirit. So we see that the church is established and extended through evangelism. Uh, established through, through evangelism, empowered by the Spirit. And now, let's see this. The church is extended by equipping. Extended by equipping. Paul's in the synagogue. 
reasoning and proclaiming the truth. And he runs into opposition. He runs into opposition to the point that he withdraws from the synagogue with the disciples he had. And daily he reasons in the hall of Tyrannus. There's an early manuscript that's not part of the original that says Paul did this from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. The hall of Tyrannus is, inter- is, is interesting to us because the name Tyrannus means tyrant. Many people think this was not his name, but a nickname given to him by his students. Either way, Paul taught these students during the middle of the day. And the men who received the teaching would then go out and establish ter- churches. And as a result of this, Paul's teaching, uh, uh, Paul, the result of Paul's teaching are seen in verse 10. It says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul equipped people for ministry and the church was extended. This is what I want us to understand this morning. You can have evangelism as a church. And even grow as a church. Because of your evangelism. You can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But if there is not solid teaching. Then that church will eventually grow, go astray. Sound doctrine and sound teaching are an essential foundation to having a solid church. Churches go astray often because they lack sound doctrine. Paul warns these very men that that he discipled. He warns them eventually to be on guard against men from their own ranks who would speak perverse things, drawing away the disciples after them. When Paul writes his final letter to pastors, Timothy and Titus, Over and over again, Paul emphasizes over and over the need for sound doctrine. Church, listen carefully. I know some people may not like the fact that, that, you know, I focus on theology and doctrine sometimes. And I bring out some of the details of doctrine and theology. But today, sound doctrine is being thrown out the window for experience and emotion. And if those experiences and emotions are not rooted in doctrine, they will not be biblical and they will fail to sustain you and they will fail to sustain a church and they they will not keep a church from serious error. Why do we find churches constantly falling into serious error? Because they don't have sound doctrine and they just go with whatever is the great thing of the day. Oh, well, that sounds good. Let's follow that. Oh, well, did you read this new book? Let's just do that. Let's try this and let's do this. And they don't have any sound doctrine. And we see Christians doing the exact same thing. Christians that are in a Baptist church go up and they say, well, I'm, I'm done with that Baptist church. I'm out of here. And they go to a completely different denomination that teaches something completely different. It just shows that they don't know what the Baptists believe. If I go from a Baptist church to a Christian church that teaches baptismal regeneration, that just shows I didn't really know what Baptists believed in the first place. This is why doctrine is important. This is why the church has to be established and devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. Could you imagine with me for a moment, verse 10, 
Just imagine as we look at verse 10, it says this. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Can you imagine? So that all the residents of Tazewell County heard the word of the Lord, both the religious and the pagans. Or even all the residents of Washington, Illinois, heard the word of the Lord, both the religious and the pagans. So, well, how's that going to happen? If it's ever going to happen, we must evangelize. We must evangelize. We must every single day rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must equip for ministry. Here's what I want to know. What role are you playing to establish and extend the church? What role are you playing? Are you evangelizing, telling other people about Jesus? Have you been baptized? Are you empowered by the Holy Spirit? Are you daily walking in His power? Are you being equipped and equipping others through sound teaching? If not, why not? Why not? You see, I believe that how we respond to this message is a good indicator of whether our church is alive, dead, or we're just dying. I believe how we respond to this. Are we evangelizing? Are we equipping? Are we empowered by the Holy Spirit? And if the majority of our people say, well, I'm not doing any of that, then we're either dead or dying. If we say, well, we better get in gear. We better get in gear. Maybe we're alive. I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer how we respond as a good indicator of whether we're alive, dead, or dying. But what if I asked you these questions this morning? Do you know for sure when you die, you will be with God in heaven? And if God asked you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? What would your response be to those questions? Maybe you don't know for sure you'd go to heaven. Maybe this morning you need to get that nailed down. In this moment, I'm going to be standing down front. Maybe this morning you'd like to come and pray or maybe you'd like to say, you know, Pastor, I'm, I'm definitely not doing these things and I need to be. I don't know. I don't know um, if you've heard the Lord speak to you in a certain way this morning. I want to give you a chance to respond. And so if that's you this morning, I'll be standing down front. You can, you can respond in your pew. You can pray in your pew. You don't need to come forward. Or maybe you, you need to place your faith in Christ and you need to come down here and, and talk to me about that. Would you be willing to listen to how the Lord spoke into your conscience this morning and respond to that? Let's close.
with prayer.